welcome to episode 1665 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Have you been watching spring training baseball, Ben? A little bit, here and there. Okay, so we have spent an inordinate amount of time in the last couple of episodes talking about the Tom and Jerry business, <laughs> yeah. and we're like, when there's baseball stuff that is wrong, they should ask us for help, the, right. the, the general they out there in the world, and we will mm-hmm. help them, but I am here to say that I have a tiny bit of uh, bone to pick, and it might be with, with MLB about its own product. Oh, wow, that's a first for us. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, we've never we've never criticized the game of baseball before. Ben, do you get these like MLB flashback commercials between innings? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So you know there's like the there's like what's supposed to be like a wicked guitar riff, and then there's an exploding <laughs> baseball and an exploding home plate. Yeah. And I guess that's supposed to like denote action or excitement or that MLB hates baseball. I don't know what it's supposed to mean. <laughs> Have you noticed that the baseball and home plate are made out of the same material in this <laughs> explosion? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, who knows what the baseball is made of these days, but <laughs> it's not made of what the plate is made of. No, they are supposed to, they are supposed to be wildly different uh, substances. And so I don't know if they thought it would be like upsetting to have the actual uh, stuff and nonsense in the middle of the baseball, like exploding outward, but it is not like a solid piece of plastic, which is what they make it look like. And so I thought I had exhausted all of the things that I could find irritating about those interstitials but i found a new thing (laughs) yeah ever since we had that email show conversation about sentient baseballs and what would happen if it were suddenly discovered that the baseballs were self-aware i've uh, been less comfortable watching baseballs explode (laughs) so that's somewhat painful but yes i've long had complaints about like mlb tv between inning things like especially when they do flashbacks to highlights which is great i like seeing old highlights but you see the same ones over and over and over again and there are so many great baseball plays out there and they're on that great interface on the MLB site now the MLB film room with all the searchable highlights and they're all tagged and it's wonderful but on MLB TV you tend to see the same like three highlights over and over and over again and it's like explore the space open up the vault show us many of the highlights that you have in reserve there because if you are a frequent baseball watcher then whatever they show if it's a repeated thing you will see so many times by the end of the season that you can't stand it anymore so mix in some variety for those of us who are watching all the time it is interesting to me that they I think there must have been a meeting or at least an email sent about um, their their level of comfort was showing Astros highlights yeah. because at the beginning of last year there were none. They did not show Astros stuff. It was like they're like nobody um, wants to have this conversation right now. And now that complete game no hitter from four pitchers against the Mariners. I've seen that ad so many goddamn times. And so um, I think that they must be out of the doghouse at least from a highlight perspective. But we are putting the whole enterprise back in the doghouse because yes show new clips and show show more teams and show weirder stuff and get a new song <laughs> da, na, na, na. 
<laughs> and you're like, Meg, that was terrible. And I'm here to tell you that that's exactly how it sounds. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a generic rock riff. That's it. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, they're like, uh, we can't, we can't make it too much like Inception, but we want it to be in that, <laughs> in that genre. We want people yeah. to, to hear foghorns. Yeah. Well, despite our complaints, there have been a lot of entertaining sights and sounds this spring training. I know I said recently that I get impatient once spring training starts. I want to fast forward to opening day, but there's a lot of oddness that happens in between that is worthwhile and some fun stuff that you wouldn't normally see, like Ichiro and Mike Cameron taking at bats and playing the field in a Mariners simulated game. That was wonderful. Or Orioles pitcher Evan Phillips facing Pirates hitter Philip Evans. Also entertaining Or the Yadi Molina Jose Siri challenge play Where Siri had the audacity To taunt Molina for failing To backpick him and then Challenged Molina essentially To throw him out or Molina challenged Him to try to steal on him And he was cut down and Yadi's arm and stolen base Success rate are not what they Used to be in his prime but He can still throw and Jose Siri Was not up to that task and Really who is Jose Siri to Challenge Yadier Molina so hasn't even been in the big leagues yet So uh, Molina sort of Cut him down to size, put him back in his place And that was fun because you could see that he cared Which is, you know, that kind of gives you A window into the competitive personality Because Yadier yeah, Molina, he's going to be A Hall of Famer, it's an exhibition game This is Jose Siri <laughs> Who is far from a household name And yet Molina Was motivated to assert His dominance to show that the old man Still had it And I guess you could say that he was provoked even more by the fact that it was not a prominent player. But also, it's like, you know, this guy is like beneath the notice of Yadier Molina, except that he wasn't. That's the way that a lot of athletes are wired. If you challenge them, no matter how insignificant you are compared to their career, they want to put you in place. And he did. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that um, if Yadier Molina watched uh, the the Michael Jordan doc that the right. and I took that personally uh, really <laughs> yes. resonated with him. He's like, finally, someone gets it. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, Siri <laughs> sort of did the Matumbo finger wag at first base, which was not wise. No. Anyway, there's been some fun stuff like that, and also this practice of rolling innings, yes. which is just for this spring. So, what if the pitcher throws twenty pitches in a frame, then the team can elect to just not finish the inning. They just uh, walk off the field half inning over, which is weird because then you get situations like the Reds and Diamondbacks had a few days ago where they just didn't finish the bottom of the ninth, I think. And it was a weird situation because I think the game was originally supposed to be eight innings and then eight and a half, and then it was supposed to be nine, but there was some confusion about that. And then there was a a rally in the bottom of the ninth. So I think the, the Diamondbacks were up against the Reds five to three or something and the bases are loaded and there was one out and then the game just ended. <laughs> it's like, well, we're taking advantage of this rule and uh, rally over, inning over, game over. And it's odd. I, I'm almost surprised there's no unwritten rule about that. I think there was a case like in another game, someone mentioned on our Facebook group, I think it was a Brewers game and they were up big at the end of the game, but they still insisted on playing it out just kind of as a courtesy or maybe just to get a pitcher some work. But yeah. It's a a weird situation. I mean, it's spring training and it's spring training post-pandemic season. And so anything goes really. (laughs) But that just sort of reminds you.
you, yeah, we're watching exhibition baseball at an odd time in the sport and in the world. Well, it's a thing that happens on the backfields all the time, right? Because, the yeah. you know, it, especially in an environment where you're uh, prioritizing development, you definitely don't want to injure a guy um, just to sort of observe the normal rules of baseball because that stuff doesn't matter. And so I wonder what it feels like for, for some of the non-roster invitees who are coming up who are prospects. Obviously, you don't have the, the sort of normal number of minor leaguers that you would have on the complex given how they've spaced out spring training to try to minimize the risk of an outbreak. But you do have prospects who are non-roster invitees and you know i'm sure for some of them they're like i thought it would be so different up here but (laughs) (laughs) i don't know they still just roll inning so it's the same yeah Uh, yeah so i wonder what it's like for those guys to be like i thought that this would feel more different than it does (laughs) right yeah yeah i want to know the the unwritten rules of rolling innings hopefully there aren't any i mean there shouldn't be (laughs) it's exhibition it's everyone's trying to work themselves back into shape at an unusual time so hopefully no one takes umbrage at this but it is a strange sight so We are doing season previews today to teams as usual. We'll be talking to Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic about the Toronto Blue Jays. And then we will be joined by Grant Brisby, also of The Athletic, to talk about the Giants. So just to button up two things that we've bantered about before we get to our guests The first is that Jared Kelnick is hurt now, I guess. So maybe this sort of ends the service time. Is Kelnick going to be on the opening day roster debate? I don't know if Kelnick is acquiescing to that because he seems to think he will be back post haste, but he has a knee injury that takes a few weeks to recover from usually. And so this would give the Mariners a legitimate excuse or cover at least not to have him on the opening day roster and not to have too many people be mad at them. And then if they bump him back to mid-April, which is when they would need to promote him in order to have him under team control for one additional year, they will have a a valid excuse for that. And it sort of reminds me of the the Vlad situation a couple of years ago where the whole conversation in spring training was, will Vlad be on the opening day roster? And if he's not, how will they justify it? And then he had that oblique injury and it became a non-issue suddenly. So I'm sure the Mariners are not happy that Jared Kelnick hurt himself, but you know, it definitely takes some of the pressure off of them. They no longer have to think of a not-so-believable excuse if they are to start the season without him. Yeah, I think that it's one of the unfortunate things about this whole scenario, which is that you just you want everyone's incentives to be aligned in the same direction and toward, you know, a good player being productive at the major league level. And I think that one of the things that makes um, sort of whatever lack of trust might exist between Kelnick and and the Mariners right now is that you have the possibility. And I, I don't know that this is true. And I'm sure you know he, as irritated as he is with both the injury and the the events of the last couple of weeks hopefully Kelnick is keeping his eyes sort of on his long-term health and career but you know you don't want him to be in a position where he might be incentivized to be dishonest about the extent of the injury and in, in an effort to be on the opening day roster and you don't want the team to like slow play this guy even when he might be you know ready sooner than uh than they want to say because they want a good excuse for the service time manipulation to take place and I'm not saying that any of that is going to happen but I just 
just I do think that one of the the side effects of this stuff is that you end up in in a skeptical place where you wouldn't necessarily be if you've had confidence that everyone was sort of acting in good faith. So I hope that Kelnick recovers soon and that he doesn't rush it and that the team promotes him as soon as he is deemed ready, both from a health and uh, on-field perspective. And then the Mariners could be good or at least better than they would be. And then we can all sing. And hopefully better than the MLB guitar riff because that was terrible. <laughs> yes. And the last bit of news is Jake Odorizzi related. So we talked last week about the fact that Odorizzi was still unsigned and was clearly the best free agent still available. You speculated that the Astros would be a good fit for him because of the injury to Framber Valdez. And then there was a subsequent injury to Forrest Whitley and it was not the deepest rotation to begin with. And sometimes things just make sense and the player ends up at the obvious destination. So the Astros did sign Odorizzi. It's a, sort of an oddly structured deal. So it's a, a two-year deal with a player option for the 2023 season, but it's an option that is very unlikely to be exercised because it's a $23.5 million guarantee but it's a $6 million signing bonus, a $6 million salary in 2021, a $5 million salary in 2022, and then a $6.5 million player option for 2023, which comes with a $3.25 million buyout. So there wouldn't be much incentive for him to exercise that option unless things have gone horribly wrong for him between now and then. So it's kind of one of those weird situations where it seems like it's largely maybe to suppress the average annual value of the contract for competitive balance tax purposes, which, you know, that was kind of the issue with the Astros. Everyone was pointing to the Astros as an obvious destination for Odorizzi, but they were right up against the CBT. And so the question was, can they sign him and still stay under that? And They seem to have found a way to do that because the player option is technically considered guaranteed money and a guaranteed year because the player has the option to exercise it. And so the average annual value of the Sotorizzi deal is a little less than $8 million, whereas if they were to put the same total into two years, it would be considerably higher. And in this case, it would put them over the tax threshold. And I don't know if it's just me, but anecdotally, I I haven't studied this, but it seems like teams are getting more brazen about It sure does. It does, right? Like they're finding ways to get that average annual value lower because for competitive balance tax purposes, what is assessed is the average annual value of the contract. And so if you can tack another year on to the end of that thing or, or do something to try to get the AAV down then it's less of a quasi-cap hit for you. And the Yankees just pulled this same player option gambit with Brett Gardner and Darren O'Day and Justin Wilson, so that saved them at least a few million for CBT purposes. In theory, like there are supposed to be limits to how much you can manipulate that, and right. MLB is supposed to have some oversight there, but it has seemed to me more and more like teams are sort of skirting that and finding ways around it. And it's not like I mind this. Sure, the purpose of the CBT is partly to try to maintain competitive balance, but it's largely to discourage teams from spending. I don't know why MLB is not cracking down more on that, because if there is one thing that MLB tends to be pretty vigilant about, it is trying to suppress salaries and payrolls somehow. And this seems like one way you can get around the penalties that are in the CBT. So 
I don't know if it's just that it's tough to legislate this or it's the last year of the CBA and they figure why bother the system is going to change anyway, but it's something that has struck me as becoming more common. Yeah. Yeah. And I <laughs> sorry, I've been talking like Jimmy Stewart the last two weeks. I need I need the vaccine, Ben. So <laughs> Is that yeah. one of the effects of the vaccine? It makes you stop talking yeah. like Jimmy Stewart. I don't know. It would let me go outside with greater confidence. Yeah, that would uh, probably. I'm so sorry, <laughs> For everyone. All of us. <laughs> I don't know. Leave it all in, Dylan. People should know. This is what this is what it's like right now for me. So I am I am similarly surprised. I mean, like I don't want to offer a galaxy brain take, but I do wonder if if maybe they are like, well, this gets players paid, and we want to try to tamp down labor unrest, and mm. they're being creative, and so you know, if another owner is like, hey, what about that guy over there? We can say, well, they did, they structured the deal so cleverly. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know though; it's it does seem very odd. I I assumed that the White Sox would get their wrists slapped around this stuff, but after after they didn't uh, with the Hendricks signing, I was like, um. Uh, maybe maybe everyone just gets to have have a little a little CBT shenanigans like as a treat. <laughs> yeah, like to stop this, I guess you'd maybe have to build something in where you can't have like a, a greater than something percent increase or decrease in salary over the life of the deal. Maybe something like that would work. I, I know this has been an issue in other sports, and they've found ways to curtail it. I was yeah. asking Michael Bauman about this earlier because. I knew that this had come up in the NHL and Bauman explained to me that this was at least one CBA ago, but there was a spate of contracts that would run like 12 years and carry on until the player's age 42 season or something. And at age 37 or so, the salary would drop from $10 million a year to $1 million. But because the cap hit was the AAV, it had only cost $7 million or whatever against the cap. And at the time of the salary drop, the understanding was that the player was supposed to retire. And so in 2010, the Devils signed Ilya Kovalchuk to a 17-year contract, right. which is uh, pretty bold. That would have run until he was 44 years old. And so the NHL said, not so fast. And they made them reconfigure the contract, I think, to 15 years for roughly the same amount. But then in punishment for trying to do the 17-year deal, the NHL stripped the Devils' first-round draft pick from them. Although I think they then gave it back before the punishment applied. And Batman said there is something called cap recapture, where if a player on one of those super long deals retired after the salary drop, but before the term of the deal was up, the team would take a cap penalty for the difference. And then ultimately, they just agreed to limit the term of contracts. So you could only sign, I think, a maximum of eight-year contract extensions and seven years for free agents. So I guess that could be in MLB's future, but maybe they can keep getting away with it if teams don't make it that egregious. And Bauman said NHL GMs are nowhere near as devious as MLB GMs. (laughs) So (laughs) maybe they will stay on the right side of that line. Cap recapture sounds like a space thing. Yeah. Doesn't it sound like a stage and like a, a rocket reentry or something? Cap yes, re- it does. Cap recapture. Cap yeah. recapture. Anyway, the Astros found a way to get Jake Odorizzi, and it's probably good for them that they did because uh, they really need him, even yeah. though he has not gone deep into games lately. And even though he missed much of last season with non-arm-related injuries, between Valdez and Whitley and COVID outbreaks and not having a ton of depth to begin with, 
the Astros really needed someone like him to kind of raise their floor, I think, in a division where they're not the powerhouse anymore and the Angels and the A's are credible competitors. And so it, it seems like, as Dan Simborski wrote in his post about this, that adding Odorizzi really gives them some insurance and yeah. you know, makes the, the worst outcomes less likely. Yeah, I think that that's right. And it's not a surefire signing by any means, but it is, I think they would have left themselves very vulnerable to what is a, a winnable division for other teams and would have been much more so if they hadn't done this. So um, I, I don't know that they had another choice but to sign someone, and I think they got the best of the available options still on the market. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we don't have to belabor that conversation, but yeah, yeah. those Astros. And more important, it cemented my win in the offseason free agent contracts draft. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Came down to Odorizzi, who I had the under on his predicted $39 million deal from MLB Trade Rumors and ended up comfortably under that, which uh, was unfortunate for Odorizzi, who at a different time might have cashed in more and and sort of deserved to probably based on his longer track record. But at least I eked out the W in that draft, which I know everyone was on the edge of their seat waiting to see who would win that one. So we will take a quick break now and we'll be back with Caitlin McGrath to talk about the Blue Jays, followed by Grant Frisbee on the Giants. It is time to talk about the Toronto Blue Jays, and we are joined by Caitlin McGrath, who covers the Blue Jays and other topics for The Athletic. She also co-hosts the Blue Jays podcast at The Athletic Spin Rate. Hello, Caitlin. Hi, guys. How are you? We're doing pretty well. So I think the Blue Jays may have led the league in rumors this (laughs) offseason. Both rumors that panned out and rumors that didn't. It was kind of a running joke on the podcast for a week or two that every time a free agent would sign, we would hear that the Blue Jays were so close. They Mm -hmm. were the runners up. They made the second biggest offer. And then ultimately, they did land some of their targets and ended up being pretty busy. But do you think that this offseason took the path that they envisioned or intended? Because they did talk a pretty big game coming into the winter. They said they were going to be active, and then they certainly seemed like they were trying to, but maybe it took a little longer for them to actually break through than they had anticipated. Yeah, I mean, I um, would consider this to have been a very good offseason for the Blue Jays in the sense that they did accomplish a lot of what they wanted to get. You mentioned that they eventually did get some of the targets they wanted. So when I looked at the offseason um, from the outset of it, I thought that George Springer did make a lot of sense for these Blue Jays center field was a position of need for them. They also needed like a, a sort of star player, like a player that you could really build your offense around. In addition to that, a player who's experienced and a player who has a lot of playoff experience. And so when you kind of look at all that and then you look at a guy like George Springer, he just made a lot of sense for the Blue Jays. So I thought that the offseason was really going to hinge on whether or not they were able to get him because the sense around the team and just following the team, 
he did seem like he was their their number one guy. Certainly, they probably had other guys that they were after too that they didn't get, but it just seemed like George Springer really was their priority. I think they really wanted him, and they really went out and got him. Other signings look really good, like Marcus Semien. He looks really good. In the lineup, he makes their offense even better. Obviously, he's moving positions, so the Blue Jays are really signaling to Bo Bichette that they have faith in him because Marcus Simeon's going to move over to second base. But the Blue Jays kind of talked a lot about how their position players are very versatile. So they kind of approached the offseason where they weren't exactly looking for a specific position per se. They were really trying to like target people and players they really wanted and then kind of mold their team around those guys. So I would say position player wise, I think the bullpen, they made some nice additions. Kirby Yates, I think could be like a sneaky good signing. So I would say the only thing the Blue Jays didn't really address fully would be starting pitching. Um, They obviously brought back Robbie Ray. They traded for Steven Matz. Both of those guys are kind of bounce back candidates, if you will. Last year, there was some good returns from Robbie Ray. So he was really happy with the Blue Jays. He kind of wanted to continue on that path to see if they could really kind of rejuvenate his career. But I would say like the starting pitching, that would be the one area where the Blue Jays didn't necessarily check all the boxes. I think they're still kind of missing another front of the rotation arm to kind of complement Hunjin Ryu. And it come, it becomes even more apparent now because maybe we'll get into this later, but like Nate Pearson's kind of suffering from a minor injury right now. So it kind of, you know, their rotation is probably the weak spot of their roster currently. Do you get the sense that it's any harder for the Blue Jays to sign free agents than the typical team? Because there is a perception that that's the case for various reasons, whether it's because, well, currently they sort of lack a, a stable home field, but also just generally, you know, the playing surface or being the only team in Canada and the complications that come with that, the milk coming in bags instead of <laughs> cartons, whatever it is. Do you think that they have to pay any sort of Toronto premium to get players to come there? I do think that it probably does take some more money just because, you know, taxes are higher here too. So it could take some extra money. I think that that's generally the perception around Toronto, especially over the last few years. And all the points you made are valid. Like I do think that there are some legitimate concerns or just like uh, questions or uncertainties with some players who have who have not spent any time in Canada. Like it is very similar to the United States, but it is a different country. There are some major differences and it is just living in a different place. Um, you have to get used to crossing the border all the time. You have to, you know, your whole family would have to have passports if they don't. So there are just like a lot of things that you have to consider. They're not major roadblocks, but just additional things you have to consider. And then this season and last season in particular, like you're talking about the Blue Jays have all this uncertainty about whether they can even play in Toronto. We don't know yet if they'll be able to play here. But, you know, honestly, like talking to guys like George Springer, Marcus Simeon too, Kirby Yates, like it it didn't really come up with them. Like none of them sounded that concerned about the uncertainty about the home ballpark. Um, The Blue Jays did a good job sort of like reassuring them like this would be the plan and, you know, we'll make everyone comfortable. We'll make families comfortable. And, you know, they're they're staying in Dunedin to start the season. So that's really not a huge transition for the players because they're all already there uh, during spring training. So and the, the other point I would make is just that 
I think all the concerns that come along with maybe coming to Canada or just coming to a new team uh, are valid. But I also think like if the team is a winning team, players will want to come here. And if the Blue Jays are willing to spend money and pay players, which they demonstrated they are willing to do this past offseason, then players will come here. So I do think that there are some like questions that pertain to the Blue Jays and only the Blue Jays. But I also think just like other teams, they can spend money, they can put a winning team on the field. And if they do those two things, players will probably want to come here. Can't believe that Ben is reigniting the bagged milk controversy <laughs> of <laughs> effectively Wild's past. So so the Blue Jays did what they set out to do. They signed exciting players. They're going to field this this team of new free agents and their young core. And it's going to be a lot harder for people in Canada to see them. <laughs> and it's going to be a little bit of a different experience to hear them. So before we get into some of the specifics of the roster, I wanted to ask you what your impression of the fan base's reaction is to the team's decision to sort of eliminate their dedicated radio broadcast and simulcast their um, TV broadcast. And then it, it seems like it's been very difficult to watch this Blue Jays team during spring training through some combination of scheduling and the, and the blackout restrictions. So what is the general sense among Blue Jays fans about that right now? And what's the, the strategy here? Because you would think that you, once you've gone out and signed exciting players, would want to make it really easy for your fans to watch them, especially when they can't in person, at least not in the beginning of the season. Yeah, I think that there is a lot of disappointment among fans right now about not being able to see them during spring training, although they did set up a cam camera today that just like streamed the game with no sound. So that was something that was new today. So it does seem like they're making a bit of an effort. I mean, it's a complicated thing because as I understand it, the decision about the broadcast and the decision about the radio broadcast in particular would come down to Sportsnet, which of course is owned by Rogers, which Rogers also owns the Blue Jays. So there is some overlap there. I don't know exactly like who is making the decision about the broadcast. My sense is that it comes more from the media side, so like a Sportsnet side, as opposed to the Blue Jays having really much say in that. I think if you ask the Blue Jays, I think they would prefer to have as much content about their teams as much as possible. So, but it is a it is one of those very complicated situations here just because of the ownership questions and them being owned by the same communications company here. But just generally though, like it has been, it has sort of slowed down, I guess, the the hyper excitement that was around the Blue Jays um, coming off this offseason. I think that I think that once the season starts, though, and the games will at least be on TV again, that kind of excitement will reignite. It's been a weird year because I think there's also been a lot of teams. I don't know if it's budget or what it is, but it seems like a lot of different fan bases has have been dealing with the frustration of not being able to see spring games. I wonder if it's just, you know, another another like layer to the general frustration um, and just you know, how difficult this year has been for everybody and just not getting that refreshing change to see baseball on your TV and stuff. It, it feels like it's all kind of adding up. But, you know, in a couple weeks, they'll be on TV every day and the Blue Jays fans will be able to watch them, albeit they'll be in Dunedin. You know, Toronto fans are still going to feel kind of far away from the actual team. Yeah, and I think the Blue Jays are the only team that's doing this simulcasting of radio and mm -hmm. TV broadcasts. And I know that last year going into 2020, the A's announced that they weren't going to be doing terrestrial radio broadcasts, but they were still doing dedicated internet radio broadcasts. And then very quickly, I think because of the outcry about that, they went back on that and had terrestrial radio broadcasts. But 
The Blue Jays' Rodgers seem to justify this decision based on COVID and travel concerns, but it seems like a lot of people interpret it as a cost-cutting measure, which... If so, you know, seems like it would be somewhat short-sighted because baseball on the radio is quite different from baseball on TV. And if you try to do a TV broadcast with radio listeners in mind or vice versa, it seems like you're either going to over-describe or, or under-describe. I mean, it's it's hard to satisfy mm-hmm. both of those audiences. So do you think it's just a, a cost-cutting thing? Is there any possibility that they might change their minds either this season or in a future season? I hope so. Like, I really hope the radio broadcast comes back because you're all the points you said are exactly it. I mean, it's a different audience. I, I think that also there are people that just prefer radio, like they just prefer listening to it on the radio. Maybe it's because they grew up that um, listening to baseball on the radio. Maybe they just preferred those broadcasters. I think with them, um, Sportsnet in particular, they, um, you know, let go of Mike Wilner, who was uh, the previous play-by-play voice for them the last few years. So they really had a vacancy. The sort of, I understood it as that they were going to try and fill that vacancy with like a former player type broadcaster to kind of compliment um, Bed Wagner, who's still with Sportsnet. And so that was kind of the the, the announcement that we were all waiting for, like who is going to be the second um, the second voice in the radio booth. And then it came down that obviously they were doing this simulcast. I mean, I will say that Dan Schulman is going to be part of some of those. I'm not sure the number of games he's doing or whether it's even been announced yet, but if there is a person who can handle that kind of challenge of calling it on TV and radio at the same time, I think Dan Schulman's a guy that can step up and do that. I mean, he's a really great broadcaster. He's beloved in Canada. I mean, he's probably beloved everywhere, but he's especially beloved here. And so I'm sort of optimistic that he and Buck Martinez and um, Pat Tabler will be there too, but I'm I'm optimistic that Dan Schulman, you know, has the has the chops to handle it. But I do hope I do hope moving forward that they do find they go back to like the ways it, it was right. And they have they do hire someone. I don't know if it's going to be a former player or who it will be. But certainly you have to wonder, right? Like you do have to wonder about, you know, if it is a cost cutting thing. But like you were saying, like if other teams have tried this, there sometimes is so much backlash that you know, the, they reverse course. And there certainly has been a lot of backlash over that decision about the simulcast. So, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm optimistic. And I would hope that just knowing how much um, fans are hurting, not having that radio broadcast, they would sort of intend for next year for it to go back to normal. Well, this is the time of year when we hear about guys being in the best shape of their lives, and often that's just eyewash, but one guy that it might actually apply to is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I'm sorry to start with this, but I'm sure you anticipated the question. I'm curious just how he actually does look in camp and what, if anything, you might think it means um, for his future defensive position. He he moved to first base last year. I imagine that he will still um, take the majority of his at-bats at first, but do you think that there's any possibility that he might end up moving back up the defensive spectrum as a, as a result of this shift in his physicality, or is he just firmly anchored at first? So I'm not present in Dunedin right now. So I can't confidently say how exactly he looks with my own eyes because I think we've only seen him on Zoom and you guys know what it kind of looks like on Zoom and he's sitting down. But I have heard from people that are there that have seen him and they say it's a noticeable change. Like they say he looks really good. Um, And I think you're right. Like I think it is probably almost accurate to say that he probably is in the best shape of his life. And he kind of alluded to that too. Like he said he feels lighter. He feels more agile. He feels like he can, you know, take more ground 
ground balls. He feels like he can swing the bat better. That speeds up, all that kind of stuff. So it does seem like it all is pointing to a direction where he is going to be better on the field. And I think also just like total credit to Vlad. He's in his early 20s and he went out and lost 42 pounds is what he told us. That's incredible. So I think like that alone, um, just being able to accomplish that, you know, taking his career in his own hands, the accountability, all that kind of stuff. It's really great to see. I think sometimes we forget because I feel like we've been talking about Vlad for years and years and years. I think sometimes we almost forget how young he is and he's still so early in his career. So I think that everybody around the organization, all his teammates, everyone's very happy to see him, you know, in the shape that he's in. And I think it's pretty apparent that he's really feeling good about himself. So that's that. I think in terms of defensive position, I think that they're giving him an opportunity to play some third base um, and they you know, don't want to close that door. I think that it's really um, beneficial for the Blue Jays and their kind of lineup versatility if he can play a little bit of third base because it really just opens things up for the rest of the lineup. So if Vlad can slide over to third base for a game, then you can have Rowdy Telez at first base, and then you can use one of the extra outfielders at the DH position. So, I mean, I could go on and on about different kind of lineup combinations that it opens up um, for Vlad at third, I will say I don't foresee him becoming an everyday third baseman. I think that the Blue Jays, the message to him is that, you know, you can play a little bit of third base, but we really want you to excel at first base now. I think they gave him the message, like something along the lines of like, you know, go out there and go become a gold glove first baseman. So I really think they envision first base as his position, but they're not going to close the door on third base, if that makes sense. Sure. And I guess like, you know, I'm also curious sort of where he's at with the bat. Like we've, you know, he was this hugely touted prospect when Eric Longenhagen wrote about him for Fangraphs. He described his bat as messianic. And I'm curious, you know, he he definitely in the shorter season saw a bit of an improvement at the plate, but he has he has yet to reach sort of the high highs that he showed in double and triple A in 2018. And I'm curious one, sort of what the expectations are for him offensively this year, and also if he's experienced anything of a, uh, any sort of release of the pressure of being the big bat in the lineup, because now he, you know, he doesn't necessarily have to carry this offense all by himself, right? He's surrounded by some other potent hitters. So what effect has that had on sort of his approach at the plate and the way that he sort of thinks of himself in the lineup? Yeah, I think that about the pressure for sure, I think having, you know, the bringing those two guys in, particularly um, George Springer and Marcus Simeon, definitely does take some of the load off of not just Vlad, but some of the other young players too, like Bo Bichette, Kevin Biggio, Rowdy Telez, uh, Danny Jansen, all of them were so young, they're still so early in their career. I think adding those kind of veteran experience bats really does take some pressure off of the other guys, um, and Vlad in particular. I think with Vlad, you know, I think that he learned some really key lessons through his first two seasons. I mean, they're not quite full seasons yet. He, you know, with his start in uh, his rookie year was you know, delayed a few weeks. We know the reason why. And then obviously last year was not a full season. So he really hasn't had like a full season runway yet to really show what he could do. But I think he just learned some valuable lessons. He learned how much harder it is in the major leagues to hit 
to uh, to hit and right like major league pitchers are a lot better than minor league pitchers and so I think he learned a lot about preparation I think he learned a lot about just you know being um, a professional hitter as as, as they always say um, you know all that all that kind of stuff um, even the fitness stuff like I know he talked a lot about how fatigue would get to him and he you know especially at, after the at the end of a long season he would feel you know tired and and so I think in his rookie year, um, you really did see sort of a decline there in the last few months. And it, he really attributed it to his just getting tired and just, you know, not being as fit as possible. And that contributing to, to his kind of slow end to the year. So again, like it kind of goes back to just like him working hard this offseason. And I think for that reason, like, I think it's, it's fair to be fairly optimistic about Vlad. I have sort of picked him to be like a, a breakout candidate, which feels weird to say because again, like we all know sure, who Vlad. Yeah. yeah, we know who Vlad is. Like he's not like some like guy that uh, he's like the 26th man on the roster, and I'm saying he's going to break out this year. Like we know, and but it, it just it does feel like there there the pieces are there. He's gone through the sort of like the lessons that you need to go through early on in your career. He's learned how to be a better hitter. He's learned all these different things. He's coming into the camp really good shape. He's got he's now on the team that's not quite in the rebuild they're kind of on the other side of the rebuild so some of the pressure is probably off of him and I think all those things like there's they they suggest to me that he could be heading for maybe that sort of big season that we all are all the fans and everyone was sort of just waiting for him um since since he debuted in the league so if Vlad's not going to play third someone else has to and there was some thought that the Blue Jays might bring in a third baseman ultimately they signed Marcus Semyon who's more of a middle infielder which seems to leave that spot to Kevin Biggio. Semyon has played a little bit of third in the past, and Biggio too has played some third, but is not primarily a, a third baseman, historically speaking. So defensively speaking, how is he expected to fit there? And then also offensively, he's been quite productive over what is essentially a full season's worth of playing time thus far, but there's still some skepticism about his bat because he just has not hit the ball very hard. It has worked fine for him so far and he walks a lot like his old man maybe even more than his old man but is there any skepticism within the organization that he can keep up that kind of offensive production no i think um i think the blue jays are huge fans of calvin biggio and i think some of it is to do with um the intangibles that he brings to the team and i think some of it is to do with the, the tangibles that he brings to the team so defensively uh they have a lot of faith that he will adapt to third base and like you said the, the he doesn't have a ton of experience there especially not uh, in professional baseball i think early almost like when he was a teenager i think he played a little bit of third base, but I mean, that's a long time ago and it's kind of like youth baseball and whatever it was, but he seems really eager and keen to learn third base, that position. He's been working hard there, I'm told, in spring training, really taking a lot of ground balls there. And so... I think that, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be really any concerns about him there. And the Blue Jays, like I said earlier, like they kind of went into this offseason almost fully expecting that that was a possibility. And I think if they didn't have faith that Kevin could do it, then they really would have gone out and got specifically got a third baseman, essentially with signing Semyon, like, and this is a move that you got to do if you're an organization trying to bring in this guy, as they essentially said to him, what do you want? You know, we're not going to give you shortstop that Spo's position, but what, what would you prefer to play? He said second base. So they gave him second base. So that kind of moved Cavan over and Cavan's, you know, he's built this reputation as this very 
team first, we'll do whatever the team needs from me kind of guy. And so essentially like they were like, we need you at third base. And he's like, okay, got it. And so he's fully immersed himself in sort of learning that position. So the only concern one might be like his arm strength. I think that's the one thing that is, you know, uh, something that he probably needs to work on other than also like really getting comfortable with the position. I think he was saying that third base is a lot more reactionary than second base. So I think it's sort of just like really getting the reps there this spring. And then offensively, yeah, he's, he's not the hardest hitter. Um, he does have a tendency to hit some home runs that are like wall scrapers. I know that's kind of been the book on him, you know, hitting high velocity as well has not been his um, strong suit. So there are some things offensively that he needs to work on. And, you know, there might be some things offensively that just really aren't in his wheelhouse. I think though, he really does make up for it in some other ways. Like the, uh, his ability to get on base is pretty much been the best on the Blue Jays for the last couple years. You know, you said he takes a lot of walks. He really has that patient plate approach. He's a good, he's good about taking a lot of pitches. And I think he's also been good about adapting. Like I think early on in his career, he pitchers kind of got the book on him that he really didn't swing a lot. Right. And so they just started pounding him with strikes and he would strike out. And so I think he kind of learned that he has to kind of walk that fine line between being patient, but also being aggressive and going up there and swinging if you see a pitch you want to hit. So he's he's adaptable. I think he kind of recognizes things that he needs to work on. And one thing that he mentioned this year, which has been sort of a trend that's been going through the Blue Jays the last two years, um, has been their two-strike approach. You know, Teoscar Hernandez talked a little bit about how that contributed to his sort of breakout last year, which is this two-strike approach, simplifying the swing, it, being more confident up there with two strikes. So, and obviously Bo Bichette is, um, you know, is well known for his two-strike approach. So I think Cavan's trying to borrow from those things and try to improve offensively that way. I want to ask about a trio of players because the the Blue Jays catching situation fascinates to me. So right now you have you have Danny Jansen, you have Reese McGuire, and then you have Alejandro Kirk, who mm-hmm. has the most impressive, albeit in a very small sample of, of their bats, uh, at least recently, but doesn't necessarily look like he should be able to play catcher because he is kind of a, a husky guy. <laughs> and as a result of that is like, uniquely fascinating to me because the body type is so unusual for a big leaguer, you know, sort of regardless of position. So do you think that he has a chance to sort of slot into the eventual backup role? Or is that really Reese McGuire's gig at this point? I think he has a chance. You know, Alejandro Kirk, fan favorite around here. Blue Jays fans love him. I think that he's just a really fun guy to watch for a lot of different reasons. Um, And so... Last year when he got called up, it was just a it was a surprise to me. I didn't think the Blue Jays would do it, um, just because the Blue Jays have typically been sort of really ca- like not cautious, but they've just been really careful, I guess, with development and, and progressing guys slowly. And but then again, last year was a weird year where you really didn't have the minor leagues to move guys up in. So they really had if they wanted Alejandro Kirk to get a taste of actual competition, they had to put him in the majors. So and it was kind of a, a mixture of things too. It was Reese was just having a really bad year last. Year and they really couldn't even have him out there. He really just had to figure things out. So Kirk stepped in. He was great last year. You know, I think the Blue Jays were really, really impressed with how seamlessly he transitioned to the major leagues last year, especially considering he hadn't played above high A. I think a lot of the Blue Jays pitchers were really impressed with him as well, like the, you know, how he called a game. Like I remember Robbie Ray um, in particular had an instant connection with him. And so considering all that, I do think he has a chance to make the team. I've been kind of like, when I've been like making my projections and making my predictions and stuff, I've been kind of like taking the safe route, I suppose, and, and saying it'll probably just be Jansen and Reese only because like, I think Reese is, 
out of options. So if the Blue Jays, you know, didn't break camp with him, then potentially they could lose him or, you know, they have to work out a trade. At the same time, like, I think Kirk, if the Blue Jays really want to be a competitive team this year, they want to have their best lineup every day. And Kirk makes them better because he can really hit. I think he needs to, I think the team says um, he needs to continue improving defensively. I think game calling, communication, getting more comfortable back there, just other defensive things while he worked on them all offseason. Of course, you can continue getting better. Like I said, he really doesn't have a ton of experience at the high minor league level. And he's only got uh, you know a handful of games at the major league level. So he could always get better. He could always use more time than minors. I think that really that's the most interesting sort of roster job competition right now, which is kind of boring because the Blue Jays, most of their roster sort of set, which is a new phenomenon. Like there's been other years where we didn't really know what the roster would be, but this year the roster is kind of set. Like the big competition is like, who's going to be the backup catcher. Um, so I, at this point, I think it's almost 50, 50 really depends on what the blue Jays kind of want to do, whether they don't want to lose Reese, whether um, they want Alejandro Kirk to spend more time in the minors, but I can see it going kind of either way. So you mentioned the rotation. There's been a lot of turnover there in the last couple of years. There was uh, mm-hmm. 2019 when everyone in Ontario made a start for the blue Jays at some <laughs> yeah. point. I made a start. I don't know if you guys caught it. (laughs) Then they rebuilt their rotation again, and now they've sort of rebuilt it another time. And Mm -hmm. as you noted, they didn't really land a a top of the rotation target, so they settled for a few new faces, none of whom is a a sure thing necessarily. And I'm sure they have high hopes for Pearson, who is struggling with a, a groin issue right now. So... How do you see this shaking out? Because there are a bunch of people who are ostensibly in the rotation who've kind of been back and forth between the bullpen and the rotation in their careers, and maybe there's some interchangeability there. So is this going to be a weakness, a strength? Is this sort of a work in progress still? (laughs) Um, I don't know. Uh, Like, I think that that on paper, it looks like a weakness in the sense of when you look at the roster as a whole, like if you were to say, what is the weak link here? I think it's a credit to the other parts of the lineup, I guess. But, you know, I think pitching, starting pitching in particular, was the weaker spot. And, you know, with the injury with Nate Pearson, it's it's characterized as minor. And I, I think as far as I can tell, it does seem to be fairly minor. I mean, he's been playing long toss for the last couple of days. And um, presumably, it, it shouldn't take too long for him to sort of at least be um, throwing a side session or something like that. So there is some optimism that this isn't going to really sideline him for a long time. But I think it's fair to say that he's probably questionable for the start of the season, just because this will put him behind a little bit. I think like the guy who slides in is probably Ross Stripling, just because he's kind of built, being built as a starter. And then, you know, if he wasn't in the rotation, he would kind of take up that like swingman role. So it's kind of easy to just slot him in the rotation to start the year. And then if Nate Pearson gets healthy, then then you just move Ross back to the bullpen where he's still that like long guy anyway. So, but there's other options like the Blue Jays. I will say like there is some question marks about their like the high end of their rotation, I guess. But they do have they have built themselves quite a bit of depth. Like they have a lot of young guys that you like you alluded to, like that kind of were bullpen guys last year, but really are more traditional starter types or want to be traditional starter types. Um, so like Anthony Kay, Trent Thornton, he missed most of last year, but he was a starter for them in 2019, like their most consistent starter. And there is Tom- Thomas Hatch. Julian Merriweather is another guy, although he's kind of dealing with some 
lower back tightness right now. It doesn't sound, again, like it's super serious, but it's kind of slowing him down. TJ Zoik is another name. He's a guy that wants to be a starter. So they have like a lot of young depth. So any of those guys could kind of be called upon to be starters. But if you look at sort of like the, the rotation and how it will be, like you have Ryu at the top. Obviously, he was great for them last year. Probably... Um, there's probably still some lingering questions about like injury with him or you just really never know. Like he does sometimes need to pitch on extra rest. So there always are, you know, with Ryu, you do have to be sort of like careful or he's very particular. And then after that, it's like kind of betting on guys that you really hope like found something, right? So like Tanner Rourke is really trying to bounce back from last year, which he was not happy with. Like I kind of alluded to before, like Robbie Ray really wants to bounce back. He he liked what the Blue Jays were doing with him. So he he signed almost right away because he wanted to continue that work with um, Pete Walker and Matt Bushman. And then Steven Matz, who's actually had a really nice start to spring. He pitched today. He had another good outing. And he's kind of really clicked with the Blue Jays pitching coaches as well. So, you know, there is a lot uh, of question marks around this rotation. A lot of it is kind of like a hope and a prayer on some of these guys to like really bounce back and not kind of fall back into maybe some tendencies that they were, that they struggled with last year. On paper, I'd say it kind of looks like a weakness because you really just like don't know how it's going to pan out. And I think also like the Blue Jays are probably almost looking ahead um, to the trade deadline. And like, if they're not shopping for a starter, even before then, I think they will be, you know, at that point. So those guys who you mentioned are hoping to hand leads off to the Blue Jays bullpen. And the bullpen last year was not especially good. It was toward the the bottom half of the American League. It was in the bottom half of baseball overall. And to sort of remedy that, they have brought in a couple of new guys, some of whom had disappointing or challenging 2020s, but who they're expecting a bounce back from. So they added Kirby Yates, they added Tyler Chatwood, they added David Phelps. So this seems like a group that could gel nicely or could once again sort of disappoint. What are your expectations for them this year? Yeah, the bullpen was weird last year because I think up until like the midway point, which I mean, last year was like midway point was only like 30 games or whatever, but the the bullpen was actually quite good. And then they really seemed to like tire out. And I think some of that was because the Blue Jays really went to the bullpen pretty aggressively. They had a lot of young guys there that like they weren't used to the bullpen roles and just like other crazy things with baseball and small sample size and all that kind of stuff. So it was a weird year for the bullpen. I think they're hoping that it's a, a more of a strength this year. The names you mentioned, they all have good track records, especially Kirby Yates and especially felt for being relievers. Chatwood is more kind of transitioning to be that high leverage relief guy now, which is interesting because I think when he signed initially, it sort of seemed like he might be more of a switch man type just given his starting experience but he's really kind of embracing that relief role or like the high leverage relief role and um you know he's also looked really good in spring so far like throwing the ball really hard and um so that kind of thing early returns suggest you know that could work out really nicely for them so you know i think a lot of this the success of the bullpen kind of hinges on like a guy like kirby yates if he can really step into the closer role and return to form of 2019 or even get close to it then you know he's one of the best relief pitchers in the majors he's a guy he actually hasn't appeared yet in spring yet i think they're kind of bringing him on slow just given like um the the injury and surgery that he had last year but he's also a guy that like traditionally isn't a big velo guy like he's uh got the splitter right so i think that he's a guy that 
if if you are hoping for a bounce back, those types of guys traditionally maybe can bounce back better because they're just like not relying necessarily on like, you know, blowing past guys. So that's why I kind of think he might be like a sneaky good signing because I think there's real potential for there for him to just kind of put 2020 behind him and really kind of rediscover like the pitcher that he was in 2019. And, you know, the Blue Jays have some other interesting arms in their bullpen, like Jordan Romano really like really kind of exploded onto the scene last year. Um, he was a guy that had, he's from uh, just outside of Toronto. So he's like a hometown guy and he had spent sort of time in the minors as more of a starter. And then finally the Blue Jays kind of just converted him to a reliever. And then he came into camp last year, having spent his full off season focused on relief. And he really like the returns were great. Like he looked great at, original spring training he looked great at summer camp he really had a nice start to his season and then it ended with like a finger injury which kind of um was tough but i mean he was shaping up to almost look like a future closer he did have some closing opportunities so if he can really be the guy he was for that short sample last year the blue jays do have a pretty good sort of setup back there where they could you know have a yates a romano a phelps back back loading that bullpen which i think you know if all those guys are doing what they traditionally have been able to do uh, i think the bullpen actually could be a relative strength for the blue jays wanted to give you a, an opportunity to talk briefly about the new player development complex that you wrote about a couple of weeks ago and i'll link to that piece but it seems like the blue jays have really invested in that area i know they've really been at the forefront of pursuing sports science and high performance departments and I know that they tend to be pretty secretive about that stuff (laughs) having tried to talk to them when I was working on the MVP machine but it seems like they're doubling down in those areas and I guess it's not a bad time to open up a new complex in Dunedin when the big league team will be there for at least a little while. Yeah, I mean, so the the complex has been a project that's been ongoing for the last uh, five years five and a half you know, years, essentially since Mark Shapiro joined the Blue Jays, that's been one of his priorities is to rebuild the facilities in Dunedin. And, you know, he's, he was pretty blunt when he was talking to us uh, whenever they unveiled the facility a couple a couple weeks ago. And he was saying that like the, the old facility in Dunedin was like the laughing stock of the majors. Like it was really outdated, right? Like, I mean, especially when you looked at what other teams are building in Florida and Arizona, they're all like these state-of-the-art monster facilities. And so the Blue Jays were really behind the times. And so finally, like now they've sort of leapfrogged other teams that they were behind. And now I think they sort of consider theirs to be the most advanced of the majors. Sure, it'll only be a number of years before they're they're um, lapped some other team will come out with an even better facility but you know it is great for it is good timing like you said like now that they have to start the season in Dunedin I think it's really great for the players like just having this facility a lot of them have raved about just the fact that anything you need is there for you the pictures that were in that piece I have are just some of them are spectacular I mean I don't even know if I've seen like a a gym or weight room like that big and that like just there's so much there they've got these expansive sort of outdoor fields these covered outdoor fields they've got these covered like batting cages so it's a really impressive facility um i was honestly like jealous looking at the photos because there's like there's like the florida weather in the background it looked really sunny it was like nice and i would love to go see it that we were there last year and it was just like under construction so you could kind of envision like how 
big it would be because you know you just like saw the like outlines of it but what seeing it actually completed is is completely different so but yeah like it's one of those things where um you know the Blue Jays gave us a tour but of course they didn't let us see inside like the pitching labs and all those like labs that teams have so I think they think it's going to give them um an advantage I think that there's certainly reasons why it could give them an advantage right like I think having a great facility for players um will make players like want to spend time there working out I think there's some hope that eventually it could become Dunedin and that surrounding area could become like a hub for the Blue Jays and you'd have like Blue Jays players spending like year round in in Florida or essentially their off seasons in Florida and so they're really using that facility all the time and then the and then the teams can have sort of sort of more supervision over off season plans and and so they kind of really hope that that it does lead to um, you know championship quality teams and I think that obviously there are other factors that go into that, but I think like having this facility, having it, you know, decked out with every single thing, a player, coaches, everyone in the organization needs, it can only help, right? Like it can only help. So pretty spectacular. They did a good job, like paying tribute, I thought to like the Blue Jays, the organization, like the history, you know, it looked really nice. All the photos, there's a lot of photos up there, which I think thrilled the players that there was like photos of them, like just last year and stuff. So it looked really nice. And I think everyone's really happy with it. And so we'll see what the next big project is for um, Mark Shapiro. Everyone's going to be, everyone's going to, I already saw fans asking for, okay, now, now renovate the Rogers Center. So, (laughs) so that's going to be the next big project that everyone's going to be asking about. Yeah, I know they've brought in people who started in other sports, you know, European sports, other non-American sports. So if you look at the Blue Jays front office, you know, high performance department mm-hmm. listings, you see a lot of names like Angus Mugford, which I, I always enjoy seeing on there. But <laughs> they've been kind of uh, progressive when it comes to that. So. We will end in a second by asking you for a a win total prediction for this season, but it's hard, I suppose, to predict how many wins the team will have without even knowing where it will be playing and (laughs) when. And this was something they got used to just being an itinerant team last year, playing in Buffalo, playing all over the place. And I guess you could say it mattered less in a season where no one had fans at games. Then again, I guess you could say it mattered more in a season when there was all this uncertainty about the coronavirus and it was probably added stress to always be on the road and not in complete control of your surroundings and living out of a hotel all the time. Mm -hmm. But regardless, they are starting this season in Dunedin. Is there any sense of how long that might last and if and when they might be able to return to Toronto or what sort of effect it might have if they have to stay in Florida for a while? So the initial plan right now, I think, is for them to play out their first two uh, home series in Dunedin, which I think takes us to just after the beginning of May. And then, I mean, they'll reassess. Certainly they'll reassess before that date. But um, so they could stay in Dunedin for longer if they can't come back to Canada. And their questions about that would just be like, the further you get into the summer months, the worse the weather can be in Florida. So it just is hot and it can be really rainy and you can just have these like massive thunderstorms. And so the weather becomes an issue. And obviously the Blue Jays um, spring training ballpark does not have a roof. So um, it might not be a good idea for them to 
stay there much longer than into the summer. So if they are not able to come back to Canada, then they would probably go back to Buffalo is my guess. They've kind of talked about how they're trying to implement some permanent changes in the fields in Buffalo with the Bisons, like they are affiliated with them anyway, and they've just signed, like they just re-upped that affiliation. So they're going to be affiliated with them for the next number of years. So investing in that ballpark permanently is only going to help their organization. Um, But it will still take a lot of effort for them to move to Buffalo. They'll have to kind of do similar things to what they did last year. And they can't find the same solution. So like last year, I don't know if you guys ever saw the photos, but like last year, the Blue Jays used the concourse for example, as like their weight room and like their their cages and stuff like that. So like obviously they can't do that this year because presumably in New York State, they will be able to sell a limited amount of tickets. So if fans are going to be in the stands, even a handful of them, then they're going to be have to move through the concourse. So so there's going to be have to be even more creative solutions for Buffalo this year. And then it just it's to answer your question about Canada, like it's really still uncertain. And I think um, the only thing that I can say is just it really kind of just depends on the continued rollout of the vaccines, both in the United States and in Canada. And it depends on then how successful that is. And then whenever the border opens, Um, I think that will be really key. I mean, the Blue Jays will continue to talk to various levels of government in Canada that they need to. But I I think the, the thing why they weren't able to play here last year and why they didn't even really pursue to play here yet is because, you know, things really haven't changed enough with the um, spread of the virus. But in, you know, things change so quickly, as we've all seen this um, going through this pandemic altogether. So in two months time, it could look really different. And I know the vaccine timeline in the United States is a little bit different than it is in Canada. But like they're talking about, they're really optimistic in Canada now the last couple of days about even getting all adults vaccinated by the end of June, I think in Ontario. So, you know, if that was able to be done, then I think there's probably a path for the Blue Jays to eventually return to Canada at some point this summer. I think that's sort of the hope. I think that if they could get back here at some point in the summer, that would be the best case scenario. It's so hard to pinpoint like a date though when it will happen because like so much could change between now and then. Okay, well, that takes us to the last question, which is how many games do you foresee the Blue Jays winning in 2021? Uh, good question. I'm never great at predicting this kind of stuff. I will say 80, 86, I think. Okay. 86. All right. Well, I don't know if that will satisfy all Blue Jays fans, but at least they will know. have a lot of young and entertaining players to watch and yeah. some new additions. And <laughs> hopefully they'll be able to listen at some point and it won't be weird as well. So it's an exciting young team and an up and coming team and uh, following up on a playoff appearance and hoping to make it another but difficult division as usual. So you can find Caitlin at The Athletic Toronto, The Athletic Canada, The Athletic MLB. You can listen to her on Spinrate, the Blue Jays podcast via The Athletic, and you can find her on Twitter at Caitlin C. McGrath. Thank you very much, Caitlin. Thank you guys for having me. All right, and now we will take one more quick break, and we'll be back with Greg Brisby to talk about the Giants. Looking back to a better day, feeling old and in the way.
All right, we are back, and we're as ready as we'll ever be to discuss the San Francisco Giants. And we're pleased to be joined by our friend and yours, the Athletics, Grantland Brisby. Hello, Grant. <laughs> that is short for Grantland, right? Uh, it's Grant Tholomew, I think, is ah, the, the yes. official one. Yes. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> so we're talking about the Giants, and I wanted to start with a quote that comes from the beginning of Ben Carsley's piece for BP in the Pakota Hates Your Team series. And yes. this is on the Giants, and he says... I've been staring at this roster for 22 minutes trying to make sense of it, and I've got nothing. It contains a truly cursed collection of names. It reads like a neglected keeper team from 2015. Is this some sort of perverse homage to remember some guys? It's like looking at an NL wildcard roster from eight years ago through a funhouse mirror. I hate it. Harsh but fair or harsh but unfair? Try making it your career, buddy. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think that's how. I, you know, I know the whole the whole gimmick of that series is is sort of yes. like a roast. You know what I mean? It's, right. it, you're supposed yes. to take it in good spirit, so it's not wrong. You know, you you do look at a team in 2021 and you start thinking, Brandon Belt. Okay, he's gonna be 33. Three and can like barely tie his shoes anymore. But you, you know, Brandon Crawford's gonna be thirty four. Like you, Evan Longoria's thirty six almost. I mean, yeah, it's it's a weird collection of like you know, name some guys. Yeah, we did a, a stat blast a couple of weeks ago on the possibility that the Giants might have an all over thirty year old lineup, which has not been done since the twenty eighteen Giants. <laughs> yeah, before that was done many times by the Bonds era Giants, who were old as well. So yeah, I mean, if Mauricio Debone takes a day off, you're looking at, at all over thirties. Basically, I mean, Wilmer Flores turns 30 at some point this season. I guess you've got Austin Slater, who is uh, a sprightly 28, but (laughs) not exactly a youth movement going on here. No. And, you know, I I noticed, I mean, I noticed this, like I really noticed it, like everything just snapped into focus uh, about a week or two ago for me, where I looked at it and said, wait a second, like this is a really old team. Like I knew, I knew they were an old team last year. I think they had the average uh, oldest lineup in baseball last year. So it's not like it's a surprise, but it's still jarring to think that uh, a foreign anxiety took the team over after like 2018. And at the time you're thinking, well, you know, it's time to, to burn everything down. And let's see what grows out of the ashes. And it, that's just not what happened. They, he stuck yeah. with the the thirty guy, thirty year old guys when it made sense to. And last year, it just kept making sense. So there you go. Well, and even their big sort of off season addition this year is a guy over thirty. I guess we can use this as a as a sort of transition to talk about Tommy Lastella, who I will never be able to read without wanting to yell Stella. But I'm curious, sort of, the the duration of his deal is a little bit surprising. He's been a productive hitter for a while now. He's been a productive hitter over the last two seasons, um, albeit in slightly limited time. But where do they sort of see him slating in not only this year, but just how much of the next good Giants team do they expect Tommy LaStella to be a part of? <laughs> it, it's a good question because, uh, you know, he's going to be around till what, 2023? And he's, you know, he's already uh, 32 years old. So if you do the math, oh, 32, 34, like what is the 34 year old giant going like how much utility is that going to have pun intended? And 
I, you know, first off, the, the first thing you have to think about is you can't worry about the contracts in the 2023 Giants. They have so much money coming off the books. La Stella's contract, and it's really, really uh, going to be backloaded. But at the same time, like, it's a rounding error on on that team because they have no long-term contracts other than La Stella. Um, the other thing is that there is utility in signing a guy for 2021. The Giants are probably going to finish behind the Dodgers. They're going to finish behind the Padres. But, you know, maybe this breaks, this breaks here, and and you're challenging for the second wild card, not saying they're favorites or that they're, you know, going to be in it on the last day of the season, but there's also value in keeping fans interested throughout September. So you can't just write off 2021. If you give fans a reason to be excited for the summer months, that that has value. Uh, but I also think 2022 sounds pretty darn interesting. And you don't have to worry about LaSella blocking a prospect because he's so versatile. You can play him at third, at second. Uh, he can be a platoon guy if, you know, Marco Luciano is, is ready and you have to play Luciano at third or, or Will Wilson is ready and he, that's the guy that has to be at second base. Like you can move LaSella around. So I think it was a combination of this guy fits anywhere. Uh, there's a benefit to winning this year. There's definitely a benefit to winning next year. And, you know, they're, the Giants don't have long-term contracts, so why not? Yeah, so you alluded to this, but Farhan was hired almost two and a half years ago now. How surprised would you have been back in the fall of 2018 if someone had somehow shown you the roster resource page for the 2021 Giants as of today? Is this totally different from what you would have expected? And why do you think he has diverged from what was expected if he has? I mean, he certainly made some smart pickups and found some undervalued gems here and there, but it just hasn't really followed the blueprint that I think a lot of people assumed he would follow. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd probably spend, spend like the first five minutes laughing about Alex Dickerson's name because I'm <laughs> eight years old. Uh, but like, I just, no, it is... It's a remarkable roster in a lot of ways. And, and there would have been a, a lot of just like, you can't go through this roster without thinking, wait, why Donovan, Donovan Stolano, that guy's not even in the majors and Belton Crawford are still around. Are you kidding me? Uh, you know, and that's before you get to guys like, uh, Evan Longoria and the, the weird rotation that's like all Cincinnati Reds with the, you know, <laughs> with like one exception. It's a weird roster. And I think it's just, it's like a ship of Theseus, you know, it's like you, you're just taking one part away and you're putting another part in and then you look up Were and everyone's just watching 30. one division. No, I wasn't, darn it. And that was like, I've, I've like listened to podcasts about the ship of Theseus and I've, I've, I haven't seen WandaVision, but I saw I saw the reference come across my timeline. I was like, damn it, that was my pet reference. But no, it, it's a weird roster and yet it makes sense. Individually, you go, well, Donald Estella, he does this, that, you know, uh, Austin Slater and Alex Dickerson, they formed together to make a, a pretty nice Lego uh, piece in left field. And you can make excuses, not just excuses, but like arguments for all of these players. It's just when you step back and you, you've got the you know the view from the, the top it's it's just an old weird roster yeah but but that old weird roster can have some utility even if it's just to to buy time for guys so i want to talk about the catching situation uh on the giants which you know we we have buster posey coming back after opting out last year we've noted the addition of kirk casali and this seems to be in part at least to give Joey Bart some time to figure stuff out. So 
what do you think went wrong for Joey Bart last year and how might he get back on track? Because when his top 100 blurb was written at Fangraphs, Eric Longenhagen worried he had been Zaninoed, which seemed like a slight to me personally, but is perhaps not a terrible way of describing the situation that he found himself in here where he had had just very little time in AA uh, at a difficult position and then was asked to sort of figure stuff out last year. No, and that's always been a comp that's that's hung over his head. You've got, you know, a right-handing hitting catcher with power drafted with one of the first picks in the first round, uh, and everything seems like it's right there. Every tool, except maybe the content, you know, maybe the hit tool, but well, well, I mean, what's going to happen? What's the big problem with that um, until the hit tool doesn't work? And, and so last year, it was really unfair to Joey Bart because it, a couple different things. I don't blame the Giants for for calling him up when, when they did because uh, they started the year and it was a real shock after a decade to realize how much a good catcher meant to a team where you, you've got, I mean, it, it shouldn't be a shock, but at the same time, you're watching Tyler Heineman and Chadwick Trump and, she, you know, Bless them for everything that they did, but it's still just jarring where you've got sketchier defense, you have sketchier game calling, sketchier, you know, just field general stuff where you're, you're not giving your teammates uh, the best chance that they might have to succeed. And so the Giants wanted a catcher and they were getting rave reviews. Like everyone at the alternate site was like, oh yeah, Joey Bart, I don't know what he's doing up here. Oh, Joey Bart's killing the ball up here in the alternate site. And the Giants kind of said, okay, you know, screw it. We'll bring him up. We don't know. Uh, our internal metrics don't necessarily suggest this, but okay, let's let's just give it a give it a whirl. And you know, he played 22 games above eight ball, and he looked like it. You know, just flat out, he looked like a guy with 22 games above eight ball, coming from an alternate site in the middle of the summer in a weird mutant season. And you know, I on the one hand, it's like I want to really use that that look against Bart. I just want to be like, ah, I saw this guy. He couldn't hit the inside pitch, couldn't hit the outside pitch. Uh, you know, breaking balls away gave him problems. Fastballs on the hands really gave him problems. So, you know, I'm just going to downgrade him to a Zanino. Uh, at the same time, mutant season, what he can do well, he still does well. Uh, maybe he will hit 220 with power and an, a, a solid glove. Uh, that should be fine. I think that's what the Giants fans maybe – stop at the Hall of Fame stuff just because it happened last time and just be happy if he is even like Zunito in his prime. We've been ribbing the lineup a bit for being old, but it was also quite effective last year. The Giants hit well, hit better than I think anyone expected, and actually hit for some power, hit an above average number of home runs. And I know that you have written about the fact that Oracle Park seemed like the land that the juice ball forgot for years, right. but- they changed the park in some ways that maybe had an impact. So why do you think the Giants did hit as well as they did last year? And what was it like to actually see some dingers in your home park? It was just like the the world's fullest canteen thrown to you when when you're marching through that desert. It was just to watch the team hit. It just, they didn't win. They, they lost more games than they won. They didn't make the postseason, but they could freaking hit. And, and I'm, I'm saying that in surprise because... It was if the Giants were down three to nothing last year, they might not win the game, but you should still watch. That was never the case. It was like a three-run first inning when the Padres were in town in 2018. It was like, forget it. You know, I I have to to be here, but you guys can go home because this isn't going to end well. Uh, last year, no, they would come back. They would scrap. They would have some good moments. 
you know, the ballpark obviously had an effect. Uh, a lot of people's pet theory is, you know, they, they closed the the archways so people couldn't come in and watch the game for free. And that affected the, the wind tunnel at Oracle Park. Maybe. I don't know that for sure. Uh, at the same time, I think the hitters were just better. Uh, maybe they had more confidence. Maybe the left-handers specifically, when you're talking about Crawford and Belt, had more confidence. Uh, but I don't buy that theory either because – Belt and Crawford started the season so poorly for two weeks, uh, I think in Crawford's case, three weeks. They were so lost. I thought they were going to get DFA'd at any second. Uh, so if it's a confidence thing, they would have to have the confidence to come back from that. So they would have the confidence to hit in the park earlier than that. I, I don't know. It's it's all a big, weird melange, but I think it's just their their hitters were were solid. I mean, they were just good, and maybe the coaching had a lot to do with that. Talk to me about the weird melange that is going to be this rotation, because some of this might work okay. Maybe? <laughs> right? You know? I, I don't know. I mean, so so we should perhaps run through some of the, the additions that they made here, right? They brought in Gaussman. They have Alex Wood. They have whatever is left of Cueto. They have Anthony De Falscani. As you said, like, this is the the once in future reds i suppose <laughs> but what are what are your expectations of what they're actually going to be able to put together here I think the plan, and the more I thought about this, because in the off season when I'm scrambling for for content, I'm looking at this rotation, going, "Okay, you need you have these five starters. Uh, you you signed Aaron Sanchez. You're going to need a sixth starter, a seventh starter, an eighth starter, a ninth starter, a tenth starter. It can't just be well, Logan Webb's our sixth starter, and then you know we'll figure it out from there. Uh, so you've got like uh, Nick Tropiano and Scott Casimir, like they have built that depth." But overall, I, I think the plan is just to make sure that the bullpen is in the game as much as possible. And they have a, a lot of guys with options. You have Tyler Rogers has options and Reyes Morant has options. And, and you'll have guys, you'll have a shuttle from Sacramento to San Francisco that's going to turn an eight-man bullpen into a 12-man bullpen or a 13-man bullpen. And they were already, the starters were already throwing fewer innings than ever before. I mean, that's just the trend around baseball. But I think last year, uh, 50% of the team's innings were uh, pitched by a starting pitcher, the lowest in, in franchise history. That trend will, you know, either be right around there, or maybe they'll pitch even fewer innings. Uh, I think that's the plan, and just going with their depth. They have quantity of quality, and if someone like Alex Wood gives them a hundred innings, hey, maybe that's what they're looking for. You know, you don't want them to give twenty innings, you don't want them to give them forty innings. But if you set your expectations at a hundred innings, well, maybe you can do it. And then if you get that, you know, maybe you can get that from Aaron Sanchez. And if you can, you get a hundred and twenty from Des, uh, Sclafani, maybe I don't know. And so I think that's the plan: just get the the quantity of quality and hope for like not a total disaster, worst case scenario for all these guys. Get the medium case scenario, and you might be okay. And what about the bullpen? How is that shaping up and how might it be managed? I was kind of curious about what year one of the Gabe Kapler managerial experience was like from sort of a, a spectator perspective. So did the bullpen issues that plagued him in Philly follow him to San Francisco and how was his managerial style received? Yes, it followed him. No, it didn't. Like I'm really conflicted on that because the Giants lost their season because of the bullpen. Um, and that's that's not really in dispute. They had the one stretch. I can't remember exactly. It was uh, 
three blown ninth inning leads in four games that led to losses, three or four or five games uh, that led to losses. And it, it, that's really, really, really hard to do. I was it, It's hard to search for it throughout history, but few teams in history have had that many ninth inning leads that lead to a loss in like Major League history. Uh, and some of it had to do with specific decisions. Trevor Gott gives up a, a five-run lead in part in a game that wasn't even a save situation. And, and Kapler's idea was, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to put him right back in the fire and build up his confidence. And instead, he just ruined his confidence. And then the bullpen was scrambling and the Giants looked like they were, you know, in contention for the first overall pick. And then things got really good, really smooth. The bullpen was smooth after that Tyler Rogers rounded into form. Caleb Berger, uh, you know, became kind of a, his go-to guy in a lot of ways. And he did great. And there was like, you know, just little pieces, Harleen Garcia, Sam Selman. And he was just playing the, the organ perfectly. And it was all mellifluous. And then, in the final weekend of the the season, Sam Coonrod all of a sudden is the closer, and whoopsie doodle, there goes that season. All they needed was one game, and a blown save by Coonrod was an, enough to just ruin all those sweet, sweet dulcet tones from from August before. So you know, it's I, I don't know. It it goes either it goes in, in both directions. You can blame him for those specific situations. But overall, I think the second month of the season, the Giants bullpen was was humming along and a big part of why they were contending in the first place. One of the older hitters that we were just talking about is Mike Yastrzemski, who surprised a lot of people in 2019. And then when people thought he might regress in 2020, he instead became even better. And you wrote about that. You wrote about some of the roots of his success. So interested in what you found there, how he has defied the odds and broken out at a somewhat advanced age and then also what do you do with him now because Matt Trueblood just wrote something for BP about how his performance and where the Giants seem to be makes him sort of an obvious trade candidate so as one of the most prominent of those slugging San Francisco Giants what is his future with this team the Whit Merrifield conundrum. No, I, exactly. I, it, it's it's true. All right, so he got better because he his pitch recognition got even better. You know, he's rarely swinging. Not just at like it's not like he's stopped swinging at balls out of the strike zone. He's not swinging as much at balls into the strike zone that don't fit his profile. You know, like he he's willing to take a good strike. He's not scared of of getting to a two strike count. And his whole approach is just fantastic. It's a really he's a really fun ball player to watch hit, especially when it gets to two strikes. He's been excellent with two strikes and that might be a little bit of a mirage, but the, the general you know, feel of his at-bats is this guy knows what he's doing. Now, as for, you know, will it continue in 2021, 2022, you know, the Giants don't necessarily have to make a decision because he'll be cheap. He'll be cheap well into his 30s. They're not going to – he's not an extension candidate. They have him under team control. It sucks when you break out and you're 30. You know, it's, it's just you, you kind of get hosed. I just don't think the Giants need need to trade him. And one reason is I don't know if they're going to get – MVP type offers for him. You know what I mean? I don't know if another team is going to say, uh, okay, uh, here's Joe Adele. You know what I mean? Here you go. We we need Mike Yastrzemski. We're going to give you one of the best prospects in baseball. Nothing we can do about it. You you Our hands are tied giant here. Have, have this top 10 prospect. I just don't see that happening. And once you start getting those diminishing returns, is it worth it for the Giants? Because they might be good in a year, two, three. And Yastrzemski, it's not like he projects to be a sloth in three years. He's a he's an athletic guy who might project to age well. 
I just, I, I'm not sure if the fit is there just yet. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but there's no harm in keeping around a good player who makes peanuts uh, just in case he get good, which the Giants plan to be. And unless another team comes over the top with some boffo trade offer that they can't refuse, I, I just don't see the fit. I think maybe we should talk about the when they expect to be good of it with this Giants team, because when you look at the 40-man the timelines for some of their top prospects, like Luciano and Ramos, you know, some of these guys, and, you know, Bart has obviously already seen Major League time, but we'll get to sort of uh, lick his wounds and hopefully um, come back stronger this year by by starting in the minors. But when you look at the 40-man the timelines for some of these guys, you know, they're they're 2022, 2023. Some of them are even further out into 2024. So what what are your expectations for when we might start to see some of these guys actually come up at the major league level? Because they're clearly not in a rush, but they aren't a bad team necessarily. As you noted, they're, they're sort of done in by a really tough division. So what are your expectations there? I think it's reasonable to to say 2023 is when the the cavalry comes and that that's when it all comes together. At the same time, I think the pattern in recent years has been for teams to arrive a year early. Uh the Nationals when they when they were terrible and then all of a sudden you could see that that wave of prospects coming up and then whoop the, you know they're good a year early. The Astros did that, the Cubs did that, the Braves did that, the Twins did that. You know, these teams you could see it coming on the horizon. You could see the Braves and what they were building and you're like, "Ah, you know, when when this team finally gets it together, they're going to be, you know, excellent. And then a year before, it was like, surprise, you know, we went, what are the Braves? The Braves went from 90 losses to 90 wins. Uh, I think there's a chance of that. Uh, enough so that you can't just punt. You can't just say it's got to be 2023. We're not even going to bother until then. Just, just don't even worry about it. Just get back to us in two years. You just have to kind of set everything in motion a little bit. Uh, I, I, you have to be confident in the Giants' ability to find strong offensive players, You know, even if they have to dumpster dive to do it, whether it's with Yastrzemski or Donovan Solano or Alex Dickerson. I, I think they have a, a fairly good track record there. So if you just promote one of those guys, if Elliot Ramos becomes a guy, you know, this year or next year, you surround him with talent. Now you've got one of your young guys and then maybe Luciano comes up. And and once you have that, you, you might have an Ozzie Albies, Ronald Acuna situation where, aha, like these guys are in place and everything sure looks a lot better as far as contending immediately. So uh, in, it, you would have to think it's likelier to happen in 2023 or even beyond, but you, you got to plan for a year early. You got to plan for some surprises in the in the near term. The Giants have a lot of coaches on their yes. major league staff, <laughs> maybe more coaches than anyone, although there has been kind of coaching staff inflation across the league as there's been more of an emphasis on player development, even at the major league level. And so the Giants have, what, three hitting coaches? They've got two hitting coaches and an assistant hitting coach who is also director of hitting. They have a pitching coach, an assistant pitching coach, and a director of pitching. So it's like double redundancy at every level. They've got multiple assistant coaches, including Alyssa Nacken, of course. They have a quality assurance coach. Have you seen any obvious benefits or effects from this? I mean, do players appreciate having 
someone available, like the the coach to player ratio is uh, quite good for the Giants. So has that paid off in any way? Have any players credited that, you know, I'm better because uh, there were three hitting coaches available at all times. And so we were able to work with them at the same time if we wanted to. Yeah, I I don't think that if if a player didn't like it, if a player thought that uh, there's too many too many cooks in the kitchen that they would say it. You know what I mean? So it's 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 a little hard to disprove it. Uh, at the same time, Brandon Crawford, I know, gave a lot of credit to what he did. His, uh, you know, when he was starting the 2020 season, uh, he was just terrible. Looked lost. Uh, looked like a guy who was going to get released. And, you know, at, at some point, not only do the Giants have faith in him and, and sort of just keep with him, which surprises the heck out of me, um, but at some point he got better and he said, you know, I think the coaching and the ability to tell me exactly what was wrong and make sure that it's not just a few minutes in the cage before a game or you know, some, someone running up with a clipboard with a, a screenshot and pointing to it, but actual dedication to, uh, you know, let's see, when he was August 14th, uh, August 15th, he had a 454 OPS. That's 20 games into a 60 game season. And after that, for the rest of the way, he was hitting like an all-star. You know, he had a, almost a thousand OPS the rest of the way. And he was crediting the, the coaches for, you know, saying, okay, you're doing this. You need to focus on this. Don't chase this. Look for the pitch here. Um, you know, I'm simplifying it, but he gave that a lot of credit. And when you look at the returns from him, from Brandon Belt, from players who looked long, lost, uh, I, I think the coaching could could have helped. It just makes sense with what baseball is today. It's, it's really, it's so granular and you can have a, a just a great hitting coach who's the best at communicating. But if you've got uh, 13, you know, hitters that you have to do that for in only so much time, maybe spread it, spread it out a little bit, you know, just, just get everyone all the attention they deserve because it's not, these coaches aren't all reinventing the wheel. They're like wheel salesmen. They're like, I've got extra wheels in the truck. You know, it's, they don't have to come up with these genius ideas. They just have to communicate them and make sure that they're rock solid in everyone's head. I wanted to ask about Nakin because I I didn't hear a lot about how her year went, which I actually took to be a good sign that she was just able to do her job. But I, I'm curious um, what your sense of, of her first year with the organization, how that, I know it wasn't her first year with the org, but in terms of her role on the coaching staff, how that had gone. And uh, assuming that it went well, what the organization did proactively, hopefully, to support her and kind of put her in a position to succeed. It's a tricky question to ask after the pandemic season because the quotes that we have the the are done via Zoom, you know, they are done in a very controlled environment. So if someone really had if someone was really being a jerk ball about the whole situation, you know, you might have heard it, a comment overheard in the clubhouse. You might have there might have been other ways to pick up on it. I'm just going to assume that didn't happen, though, and that she did her job well and that everyone sort of appreciated it and that it was fine. I mean, I know Andy Baggerly uh, wrote something on her in October and everyone's like, yeah, you know, she she ruled. She did what she was supposed to do. She helped out. She helped with, with what we asked her to do, did a little bit more. And I think we were better because she was there. And she, that's, you know, that's the sense I get. And I have no reason to think that there are grumple pusses who, who think that that is, you know, not the case. So I'm just going to be like, okay, like this, it, like, like you said, the, the lack of noise, maybe that's an awesome thing. So Giants are in a division with uh, two pretty good teams 
<laughs> the Dodgers and the Padres and whatever fragment of your former Giants fandom still lingers inside you is probably not thrilled to have two powerhouses that seem like they could be competitive forever in the same division. I'm sure a lot of Giants fans feel that way. Of course, I know you can also appreciate what makes them appealing, what makes them fun to watch, particularly the Padres, who maybe you don't have the historic enmity toward. But What does that do for the Giants in the future? How do you hope to compete with these two behemoths that are among the best teams in baseball, if not the best teams in baseball now, and seem to have just an endless wave of young players and prospects coming up behind them to the point that you can't really forecast a year? You know, it's not like you can flip ahead to 2023 or something. It's like, okay, that's when the Dodgers window will be closed, and that's when the Giants will just be rounding into form, you know, whatever (laughs) year you pick. Like, there's no year where the Giants necessarily project to be better than those teams that we can actually foresee now. So how do you go up against those two teams? Yeah, I will. The first thing I'll say is that I, for some reason, I've always had a special enmity uh, toward the Padres. It's kind of (laughs) like, now I don't know, this is just me like guessing how it was because I was like captain of football. I was really popular in high school. But like, you know, when like you're a dork and and you're with another dork and you get to bully that dork, like- (laughs) That feeling is like what Giants fans could do with the Padres. It's like, ah, right. none of us have World Series, but, you know, the, you know, the Dodgers, you know, yeah. were the captain of the football team. And then they just had a growth spurt suddenly. They just yeah. fade out. Yeah. At least you could give the Padres a noogie, you know what I mean? And, and then, <laughs> right. so now they're, so I don't know. It's it's weird to see the Padres thriving like they are. And a lot of that had to do with uh, like how all great teams are built. It had to do with solid development and smart things. And then it also, it's like, you know, the White Sox want James Shields for whatever reason. And, and then he turned around and there's some super team. I'm not entirely sure how that happened. It's it's hard because the Giants want to do what the Dodgers do. As far as they want to have the money, they've got their real estate development and you know, across the across McCovey Cove, they're putting up all these buildings and they're expecting to be not just a baseball team, but also real estate magnates. And and once you have that, you're the easiest way to get people to buy condos and storefronts near the ballpark is to have a reason to come to the ballpark. So they should spend money on the team. They want to be rich. They want to be powerful. They want to have a conveyor belt of prospects and, and develop the players. And that's the plan that you can't really worry about the Dodgers. You just have to get that conveyor belt functioning. You have to get that steady stream of like, oh, I guess we've got, you know, Cody Bellinger. Oh, wow. MVP. Okay, great. Uh, you have to do that. You have to have players like Alex Verdugo, who is, you know, worth a Mookie Betts in some team's eyes, I guess. You have to just get those prospects up. It allows you to do everything. It allows you to spend on Trevor Bauer. Uh, it allows you to spend on Eric Hosmer. And once you have that conveyor belt, it's hard to stop. Baseball is rigged to underpay the players who are the best. I mean, you you guys know this. The, the players in their 20s are the best players. They're the healthiest players and they're the cheapest players. And once you get those guys into the system and they start paying off, it's just a perpetual motion machine. You can keep doing it uh, and you can keep, you know, giving noogies now to the pirates or whomever. Right. Well, you know how we end these things by demanding that you make a win total prediction. So how many wins for the Giants in 2021? OK, OK, OK. So last year you did this and I think I, I did like 40 right yeah (laughs) and the joke was that the season would be cut short because of the pandemic you nailed it yeah so like a lot's riding on this grant 
I'm I'm gonna I have to say two hundred. Uh, because <laughs> they're going to play so many more games than we expect, and it's going to be uh, all right. So let's see. This season, I'm going to go 80. I think they will fight to get to 500. I think they'll do better than some people give them credit for. Uh, they will be in the thick of a second wild card race later than some people think. Might not win more games than they lose, but will be an overall hey, you know, not too bad year. All right. Well, a not too bad year is something that a lot of us would be very happy to have right now. Grant, I think you were like really sick when we talked to you last year too. And I might've been like, Grant, do you have COVID? And we were like, no, he doesn't. And I just, uh, it's haunted me the whole year. So I'm, I'm glad you're well now. I was, I've been feeling badly about it. I'm not going to lie. So yeah, no, I, I, that was after I flew home from Arizona. Yeah. Um, so I flew from San Francisco to Arizona back to San Francisco. I I was sick with uh, a fever and it was like a respiratory illness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't too sick, you know, but I, I was I was pretty sick. And uh, yeah, no, I probably had the darn COVID. But, you know, well, there's no way to figure that out now. Yeah. I missed that episode. I forget why I was away, but I was listening to you all and you were all talking about how conscious you were of touching your face and how you were trying very hard not to touch your face. Yes. Early COVID days. Yes. And I had my thumb on the mute button on my mic because I was coughing like at all times. Like (laughs) this was about five days into it and I was just sort of like mute, like unmute. Fun times. Fun times. Yep. Well, glad you're healthy now. All right. (laughs) Well, you can read Grant writing about the Giants at The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter at Grant Brisby. You can hear him co-hosting the Giants podcast at The Athletic, Bags and Brisby. He is Brisby. Thank you very much, Grant. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me on. I always enjoy it. That will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Dan, David Byerman, James Edward Morgan, Brian Goldgeier, and Javad Vaziri. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify. Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. Good note. Good note, Meg. Thank you. This, <laughs> this your guys' first time? Is this the inaugural podcast? I'm excited. I've only done this 1,600-something times. <laughs> Leave it all in. Just working out the kinks here. <laughs> Leave it all in. Leave in my muted silence <laughs> <laughs> that we didn't even record. Okay. Try that again.